Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guests, I want to encourage listeners to vote for your favorite episodes of 2017, as well as telling us about yourself and your listening experience at the EconTalk survey we do at the end of the year. Go to econtalk.org, econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to that survey. Thank you for a great year, and I hope to make 2018 better. Today is December 18th, 2017, and my guests are Kelly and Zach Wienersmith. Kelly is an ecologist specializing in parasites and is a Huxley Fellow at Rice University in the Biosciences Department. Zach is the artist and creator of the daily award-winning cartoon, Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. Together, they are the authors of Soonish, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That Will Improve and or Ruin Everything. Kelly and Zach, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks so much for having us. Now, I want to start off... um, I asked this um, before we start recording. I asked how to pronounce your last name. Uh, Kelly, can you explain that? Uh, sure. So uh, Zach's last name before we got married uh, was Wiener, and mine was Smith. And when I was publishing papers in grad school, it was very hard to find my own scientific papers because Kelly Smith is a very common name. And so I decided that I was going to change my name when we got married. But there's also a lot of Kelly Wieners. Uh, in fact, thousands of papers written by people whose name is Kelly Wiener. And so we decided to combine our names into Wienersmith, uh, for which there is only us. And so now it's easy to find my scientific papers, and it's funny. It's very romantic. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly romantic. I, I think you made, a, um, you made a musical reference, though, when you told me off the air, Zach. What did you say? Musical reference? You oh. did. It's a tale as old as time. Yeah, which is which I was is Wiener, she was Smith. Well, that's one of my favorite uh, songs uh, from uh, Disney musicals, which is from Beauty and the Beast. Is there some symbolism there? <laughs> well, she's the one who does the field work, so, uh, so I guess I'm the Beast in this relationship. <laughs> I, I have rather luxurious hair, I should say. He does, so. yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> on a semi-more serious note, uh, this is an unusual book. It's. Um, Speculative science is what I would call it, science fiction-ish. Um, it's all over the place. It looks at space technology, the human body, home construction. And we're going to talk about a bunch of the topics you cover in the book. But I'm curious how you literally wrote the book. And it's illustrated uh, with Zach's illustrations. I assume those are your Zach. So I'd like to hear how, how you handled the, the divisional labor on the, in producing and writing the book. Well, for each of the chapters, one of us did the initial look at the primary literature. And so we would go to manuscripts or, uh, you know, scientific books and take a first pass at, you know, what the field was about. And we'd write a rough draft and then send it to the other person. And part of why we did it that way is because the other person wouldn't know as much about the technology as the person who did the primary literature read. So we could make sure that at least our first pass describing each of the technologies was clear enough that someone who didn't know much about the technology would be able to follow it. And then after that, the second person would do a little bit more reading, and then I would conduct some interviews, and then we'd send the draft back and forth a couple more times, and then Zach would add some jokes and some comics, and then we'd send it 
back to the experts that we interviewed and then to some additional experts so that they could catch any errors or tell us if we were not understanding the field correctly. And that was pretty much it. And of course, our editor looked it over and told us if we were being unclear. And that was pretty much the process. Well, Zach, did Kelly write any of the jokes? <laughs> None that I accepted, I don't think. <laughs> that, is, that is not true. <laughs> what, did you, what did you write? What did well, you... I mean, it was not a joke, but it was yeah. a funny story about interviewing John that Mendelsohn. That's true. Okay, yeah, uh, there's one, one uh... Oh, that's very gracious of you, Zach. I, I will say... <laughs> I will say I learned a lot from reading this book about technology, uh, and it was a very stimulating book. I'm trying to, I'll try to share some of the things that I th- thought about along the way. But I did laugh out loud a couple times, and there was a oh, bunch great. of uh, otherwise there were a bunch of smiles, the occasional smirk, and I have to confess the occasional that wasn't funny, but it was a good try. <laughs> swing and a miss. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, there were some swings and misses, which is, you know, that's great. You're batted about 800, which is much better than uh, what it takes to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I want to start off with the space chapter is it, it begins with space. The book does. And it's very uh, lengthy. The discussion of space, all kinds of different aspects of space travel. I want to start with asteroid mining. Uh, explain what that is and what the technological challenges are and why it, it could happen, even though it seems like a long shot. Sure. Um, so the first thing to know is that the word mining kind of um, maybe gives you the wrong visual because maybe you start imagining Bruce Willis with a drill on an asteroid with an inexplicably large gravity field. Um, but it's actually more like going to um, uh, the asteroid belt or, or, or catching rogue asteroids and making use of the materials inside them. The, the asteroids themselves, this is important, are not like Star Wars asteroids. They're not going to be like big potato rocks. Some of them are going to be mostly metal. Some are going to be what are called rubble piles, which are just sort of agglomerations of dust and rock. Um, and, and so you can imagine all these things pose lots of problems in terms of landing and capturing. Uh, but, but um, which we can get into if you want to, but, but the, 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 the short version is it's probably not economically viable to do what most people think the idea is, which is to get them and bring materials back. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, of course, it's just very expensive to go to space, even under optimal conditions, which we talk about in a different chapter, uh, where it's very cheap, it would still be quite expensive. Um, two, you have to compare that expense against the cost of just digging a really big hole on Earth. Um, so one thing we try to do in this book is inoculate people against bad science reporting, so one thing you'll often hear is something like, well, did you know in the asteroids there's $80 gazillion worth of platinum? Yeah. And that's true <laughs> in the literal sense of it. But it's also true in the Earth there is $80 gazillion worth of platinum. So the question is not how much value is there in an asteroid. It's is it better to go get it than to dig a really big hole um, on Earth? Um, and Earth has lots of conveniences like Wendy's. Um <laughs> Uh, but um, so so there's there is a pretty deep tough economic question. However, uh, the the one potentially viable use is if you really wanted to build a giant sort of Star Trekky ship or a settlement out in space that was quite large. Um, asteroids might be a way to do it, um, and, and and that comes down to fundamental physics. Uh, for listeners who don't know a lot about space stuff. The, the really hard part about getting around space is getting off of the planet. Uh, you know, yeah, that was around. really interesting. I really in- talk about the, the fuel problem because that was just I, I never thought about it. It's a great point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> pardon me. So we, we use a, um, uh, what, what we say is imagine you wanted to take a car from, say, Alaska to Buenos Aires. I forget which we actually used in the book, but you wanted to go an extremely long distance in a car and you had two choices. One was. 
hit the gas station every 100 miles. Uh, and choice two was start with every bit of fuel you're ever going to use. Um, so intuitively, you want to go to the gas station. But the reason you want to go to the gas station is that, um, and this is very easy to visualize if you imagine the, the very beginning of the trip, um, if, if you're holding all the fuel you're ever going to use, a huge amount of your fuel goes to just carting more fuel forward. Um, so you imagine at the beginning you're starting with like a Mount Everest of gasoline and there's just this little tiny bit of cargo you're taking with compared to the amount of fuel. Um, so your engine is working like crazy just to move that Mount Everest of fuel. Uh, and so you can imagine the opposite extreme would be like a magic pixie drops a single bit of fuel into your tank every time you need it. Uh, in that case, you're 100% cargo. You're well, you're the machine, you're you, you're your luggage, whatever you're taking. Um, if you have to start with all the fuel, most of what you're going to be able to take is, is fuel you're going to be able to take, like yourself, a mountain of fuel, and maybe a tiny bit of luggage. And essentially, with a rocket, you're in scenario B. There are no gas stations en route for a rocket. Um, so what's the result? When you look at a rocket, what you're actually looking at is about 80% fuel by mass. Uh, and then about 16.5% is just the machine, the rocket itself. And that's on, on a pretty pretty measly mission to, to low Earth orbit. Uh, on, a, uh, on a moon trip, it's even worse than that. Uh, and then about 3.5%, again, on an efficient trip, is actual stuff going to space. Uh, so uh, you, you can imagine that that really, one, limits the economics of what you can take to space. That's why when you look at the Apollo missions, they're like tin cans with paper-thin walls. Uh, it's just very expensive, very difficult to get stuff to space. Once you're in space, it's quite easy to move around. Yeah, well, well, that's why it's hard to take a crane with you if you're going to go dig on the on the asteroid but or whatever you do there. But is, is there anything plausible about this at all? I mean, it's fun to think about. It's... Um, you know, in each in each chapter of this book, you speculate about how likely or unlikely or when it might happen, or what are the effects going to be, and whether what is what's the downside of some of these uh, innovations, which is, all of which is interesting. But is is this one just pie in the sky? If I may use a bad joke. Well, so it, it's possible that it is pie in the sky, but there are definitely some companies that have been built up just to do this and are working on the technologies for it. And certainly I wouldn't be surprised to find out that a company started up with an idea that wasn't going to pan out eventually. But there are certainly people who think that this will be a money-making venture at some point, uh, maybe for space tourism. I think some people are looking into it as a way to bring supplies to the International Space Station for cheap. So some of these asteroids are made out of water. And if you can get out to the asteroids, that they argue it might be cheap enough to go collect the resources from the asteroids and bring it to the International Space Station, maybe that would be cheaper than bringing it from Earth. Uh, so some of these, we, we liked to do a mix of technologies that were like, you know, maybe this will never work out, but it would be awesome if it did. And then some technologies that are already rolling out, like, you know, CRISPR and stuff like yeah. that, that's in the synthetic biology chapter. So this one, we admit, is one of the more maybe far-fetched, but there are certainly people who believe in it and are investing a lot of money in their companies to try to make it happen. Can I, can I add, I think that there's a sort of more fundamental question about whether there's any use to going to space uh, outside of low Earth or geosynchronous orbit, um, like any economic use, I should say. So one thing you'll, you'll sometimes see in, in books about space is that on the moon, there's a larger amount, or there's, there's an accessible large amount of helium-3, a rare isotope of helium, 
And people will say, well, we should go colonize the moon. I'm sorry, settle the moon. Uh, colonize is no longer the preferred term. Nope. Uh, we should go settle the moon uh, because then we'll get all that helium-3, which maybe be, could be used in a, a fusion device. Um, and it's really, to me, feels feels very specious because, one, there's no plausible uh, mainstream fusion device that uses helium-3. But even then, again, um, you have to look at what you could get on Earth. Um, but it, it's a bit of an ominous thought, though, that it, it'll be never economic to go anywhere in space. Um, but the, the, the core problem, to my mind, is everywhere else in space, they're operating on the same periodic table as us, right? So if you go to Mars, there's not magic Mars stuff. Um, there's the same elements we have here. Uh, and it's true in the asteroids, too. So it's not obvious that there's there's a good economic argument for going to space. There may be a sort of human argument. Yeah. Um, Aesthetic. So Philosophical. Yeah, yeah, it's a sort of Carl Sagan-ish, uh, humans are nomads uh, sort of argument. Maybe we find it aesthetically pleasing to go settle Mars. And then perhaps as a result of that, there's a Martian economy. But there's, there's um, as you say, there's, there's, there's not an obvious win for any economy or business person about figuring out the way to go get asteroids. Or it, it, like I say it's not obvious. There could be one we're not thinking of, but it is definitely tricky. But one of the challenges of this kind of book, and I, I salute you for even getting near it, is that so many things in the world are unimaginable until they're imaginable, and then they're just humdrum, mundane things. And I saw a chart recently, I think it used to take, it doesn't matter what the actual length is, my memory is, it used to take three weeks to go from New York City to Chicago. And you can imagine people in that time saying, yeah, well, it'll never take less than three weeks, it'll, and therefore it'll never be economical to do X, Y, or Z with New York stuff or Chicago stuff and trade back and forth and to say that we'll go across the ocean, you know, it's just that it's always going to be for dangerous risk-taking lovers, risk lovers who are lunatics. And so, I mean, the idea of flight, human flight is absurd until it happened. Now, the, the question, though, is there are certain fundamental limitations which seem, uh, you know, maybe they're the speed of light. They certainly are gravity. There are certain things, it seems, that would make some of these space actions implausible versus never, ever. Yeah, what I would want to say is, and again, this could just be the limits of our imagination, but if someone in the year 1850 said, hey, would it be good for the economy? Like, would people want it if you could get from, you know, London to Paris in an hour? The, the obvious answer would be yes, it'd be very useful. Uh, it, it's it's not obvious. I don't think uh, if, if you could go to Mars, would you be able to boost the economy? Or I mean, there's tourism, but that doesn't increase productivity, right? Uh, so, um, so it, it, at least in my imagination, it's hard to predict why it's valuable. It's, it's, it's extremely valuable to go to low Earth orbit. It's extremely valuable to go to geosynchronous orbit with a satellite. Uh, but what the sort of market value of, of of having Elon Musk walk around on Mars other than us all being really happy about it is uh is hard to predict. Well at at one end I think the at current knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, uh serious space travel beyond Mars at, at long distance is not particularly good for you, at least as far as for human beings as far as I think we know so far. But maybe it'll turn out it is good for you. Maybe it maybe it'll extend lifespans in interesting ways. And it's not obvious to me that in 1850, if you said, what if we could connect Paris and Lon in New York in an hour, wouldn't that be great? Or London and New York in an hour? I think mostly would say, well, well, that's just a novelty thing. That's just like for tourism. That's like, so I think the, I think it's hard to imagine, again, uh, the aspects of the unimaginable, not just the, the fact itself. It, it could lead to things that – well, it will lead to things that we can't anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, to be honest, I do feel like it's more likely that it will shorten lifespan yes, in previously ununderstood ways. Uh, yep. But, well, we'll just have to wait and see. Yep, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you'd have to alter the human body. That radiation has different impacts than it has now on us. Who, who knows? Um, and what's it like having a baby in yeah, space and yeah. being pregnant in space? Yeah. I don't know. But root canal is great, uh, probably, in space. Um, <laughs> yeah. One thing, I want, I want to ask one more question about space, then I want to move to a different topic. Um that elevator thing, I never, I didn't, I don't quite understand how that works. Can you explain the the elevator that is how many, how how long is it, how tall is it, and what's holding it up? I don't, I don't quite understand that. Sure, the ribbony uh, yeah, thing, uh, the ribbony thing. I don't. So yeah, it's called a space elevator uh, usually, um, and uh, the the basic idea. So so for people who don't know, let me. The visual would be. Imagine you're in a boat on the ocean and you see what looks like an enormous oil rig, perhaps a heavily guarded oil rig. And out from the top of it is this very narrow ribbon uh, cable that extends up into the sky like someone's doing the the Indian uh, rope trick, only it goes, you know, all the way out of vision. it's, It's a very thin cable. You probably don't even see it until you're fairly close. Um, but what you will see is little cable cars sort of riding up the cable, and they're going to go um, – in the design we discussed, there are lots of variations, but the sort of classic design is there's an 100,000-kilometer-long uh, cable. That's about 62,000 miles, and it goes out to a – Oh, is that a, all? Oh, it's only 62,000 miles. Oh, miles. Okay. Yeah, so quite quite far out, uh, and uh, at the other end is a counterweight, uh, which is just maybe a captured asteroid, some sort of heavy object. And the the physicsy reason you do that is so it puts the center of mass in geosynchronous orbit. A, a sort of simpler way to say that would be it it, it it's set up so that it, the cable doesn't wrap around Earth either by the Earth spinning slower than the cable or or the cable spinning um, slower than Earth because um, you know that'd be embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> And um, the, the way I like to describe the physics as, as a sort of uh, first principle way to think about it is you imagine you have a spring in your hand and you want to swing it around your head so it sort of straightens out. And then it, it, this is a bad analogy, but you can imagine if, if it's so that like an ant wants to crawl along the, the, the spring, you have to spring it. At a, uh, you have to swing it at a certain speed because it's always trying to compress back down. Um, so if you put a rock on the other end, it's much easier to do that swing at just the right swing. So it's a nice stretched out um, um, piece of, say, metal or whatever you're doing. Uh, so um, why do you want this? Well, it goes back to what we discussed earlier about having to take all your fuel with you. We said there's no gas station on the way to space, but if you have a cable you're riding all the way to space, effectively there is. In fact, there's arguably something better than a gas station, which is power beaming uh, the whole way up. Um, so in principle, you get the cost way down uh, because A, you're, you, you solve that fuel problem, but B, you're also not throwing away the machine you use when you go to space every time like you usually do with rockets. But you go up that ribbon in your little elevator, your little cable car, and you get to the counterweight, the asteroid. Now what? And what's the point? I mean, it's a heck of a thrill ride. I get that. <laughs> the, uh, so, the, the, well, the, so the cool thing is, once you're that far out, so so if you're in the ISS, the International Space Station, you're only about 250 or 300 miles um, from the surface of Earth. You're actually experiencing most of gravity. Um, so, you know, you you don't feel like you're experiencing gravity because you're in free fall. Uh, but if you want to boost way out, like if you want to go to the moon, it's still going to take a lot of energy because you're still in Earth's gravity well. If you go out 62,000 miles, you're getting to where you feel you feel very little gravity. So meaning if you, if you want to go on a moon mission, you want to go to Mars, it's much easier because you're in open space. Um, 
I, I have like analogies for this if, 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 if you want. I don't know if we want to get too thick into this. Uh, Probably not. But, but yeah. the point is, the point is, you could use your magic um, rocket shoes to lift off from the outside the cable car on the way to uh, Alpha Centauri, uh, and it'd be easier to escape the gravitational field of Earth at sixty-two thousand miles up rather than the surface. That's that's the gist of it. Yeah, and, and so for rockets right now, it costs about $10,000 per pound of stuff that's going up there, and that in- includes the fuel. Uh, and the estimates for a space elevator is that it, you could get stuff up there for about $250 a pound if you could get this crazy idea to work. And so at that point, you know, you just bring a little bit of extra fuel, and then your rocket takes off from there or something, and it's much cheaper if you can make that system work. But that's that's a huge if. Yes. So if I mistakenly drink a cup of tea right before I go to bed— Usually, I gain about a pound. So you're telling me that that would be like a ten thousand dollar cup of tea if I took if I drank it right before the flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Zach calculated that an apple seed going to space would be ten dollars, yeah. and you know, a quarter pounder with cheese would be two thousand five hundred or something. So it's, it's very expensive right now to get stuff up into space. So, a general question: uh, We can ask it about the the space elevator, which seems like a one of the greatest terrorist targets of all time, if it ever happened, which is a tragedy about the state of humanity right now, at least, but such is life. Um, so here are three people right now, you, uh, the, the Smiths, and me, discussing a 62,000-mile-long uh, cable elevator that's somehow uh, anchored by the counterweight, which is going and rotating around the Earth. And uh, we're, we're speculating about the possibility of using it as a, as a launching place for fuel. Now, it's possible we're the only three people on the face of the earth thinking about this right now, but I suspect not. So I'm curious, how, first of all, how many people do you think are thinking about this right now? And secondly, in the course of writing the book, you must have met a lot of strange people who spend a relatively large part of their day imagining – not imagining, but trying to solve the technical problems – that are keeping these technologies from being uh, practical. And uh, just, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so uh, the people that we interviewed for this chapter were from NASA's Advanced Innovative Concepts Group, NIAC. Uh, and they they spend a fair amount of time thinking about the space elevator. And for example, there was recently an X Games where the... X Prize. X Prize, yeah. sorry, an X Prize event where the whole deal was trying to figure out how to beam power to the space elevator to keep it going. So there are a lot of groups that are working on this problem. Uh, and I, I guess I think in general, there are a lot of people who are working on technologies that may be many decades out. And, you know, you could argue that some of them are wasting their time. No doubt some of them are. But I think a lot of them, if they solve their particular technological problem, uh, even if they can't make the whole technology work. So maybe if you came up with a good cord for the space elevator or a good cable, but you didn't actually make the space elevator itself work, that really strong cable could be used for other technologies. And so I think for a lot of these, the effort that goes into them could benefit other fields or other technologies uh, and, and be a good use of people's times. But uh, I do think there are a fair number of people who are working on the space elevator concept in academia, in government agencies. And like some people could be work, you could say they're working on the space elevator problem, even if they don't really know that they are. So for example, for a long time, people stopped working on the space elevator from what I understand, because no one could figure out what that cable should be made out of. 
because that cable needs to be very lightweight and it needs to be very strong. And there was no material that was both lightweight enough and strong enough to be able to hold a cable car. Dental floss, but okay, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Uh, But a totally different field discovered carbon nanotubes, which are just configurations of carbon atoms that create this tube that's really, really strong. And it turns out if you can make a long enough carbon nanotube, which it turns out is a gigantic if, uh, with no imperfections in it, then that might be what you need to make a space elevator work. So, you know, sometimes people might put a technology down for a while and then a different field will come up with a new innovation and then that gets the game going, uh, you know, in the space elevator field again. Yeah, one of my favorite lines from the book uh, as an economist was the sentence, new technology is not simply the slow accumulation of better and better things. Of course, a huge part of our life is the slow accumulation of better and better things. Um, I now have um, wrinkle-free shirts that are they claim to be formaldehyde-free, and they <laughs> might even be less wrinkly, which is just a fabulous better, I think. I don't know, really, but they sell it. Uh, it's part of this, <laughs> one of the selling points is no formaldehyde, which is, okay, good. Yeah, Seems like it's also dolphin-free. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm in, I'm in with that. Uh, but and, and, and a huge part of life is like that. The, the car gets a slightly better miles per you know per gallon. There's a slight improvement in mileage. My battery on my phone lasts a little bit longer or more likely a little bit less. But but basically, the, things move slowly. And what you're really – much of what this book is about is the possibility that there will be radical transformation. Yeah. As a similar example to what Kelly was talking about, my understanding is with Tesla, the, the company um, – you know, you have it only became possible to do decent EVs, electric vehicles, because uh, lithium ion batteries got so good and they weren't getting better on behalf of electric vehicles. They were getting better on behalf of gadgets. Um, so, you know, a similar thing could happen for a material for a space elevator. Just uh, if, if that market develops. You want to add anything, Kelly, to that? Nope. Um. Let's move on to a different area, which um, let's take housing. And, and so we've come down to earth now, and then I, well, maybe we'll end with inside the body. But down to earth, um, you, you make the claim. I, I was kind of surprised at the claim. I, I'd like to hear you defend it. Part of the claim is clearly true. You make the claim that a lot of – the first half of the claim, I would say, is that uh, so little of what we experience in life is handcrafted now. So much of it is is industrially produced in a mass way, uh, which keeps the cost dramatically lower than it otherwise would be. But a house, a house is a bunch of people with tools who put it together for you, which is a little bit bizarre. Uh, the part I was surprised at, you say, that basically, the technology hasn't changed much, I think you said, in the last 100 years. I, that seems surprising to me. Just drywall alone seems like something of a breakthrough. But talk about home construction and, and what has change and what has it and what are the, what's the possibility for a radical transformation there yeah yeah so in in, in fairness yeah it, it, it has changed in some ways it, it just hasn't sort of revolutionized we, we talk about um the, the the big development in the last hundred years um that's not material would probably be the development of prefab parts um which are maybe not aesthetically great but uh, make things a, a decent amount cheaper although the cost of construction has gone up uh, significantly, so maybe that offsets it. But um, but yeah, so the idea is 
Um, there are a number of paradigms through which you might achieve this, but the basic notion is you have machines take over the job of construction workers, either by sort of directly replacing them. Uh, you can imagine a sort of, you know, robot arm walking around with a robotic eye, just replacing what a conventional construction worker could, could I mean, human when I say conventional, uh, but, but there, there are other paradigms like a sort of big 3D printer or little swarm robots that move things into place. Uh, but the basic idea is you replace uh, human labor with machine labor on construction sites uh, and and then potentially both save a lot of money but then also open up kind of new architectural ideas uh, and and kind of um, op- open up bespoke architecture to everybody uh, and um, so so lots of excitement if it works if it actually becomes economical uh, which uh, is, is also an open question although some of the technologies are, are- uh, I guess I'm even close, more than close. So like the yeah. semi-automated Mason or Sam is a robot that uh, takes bricks, puts the mortar on and is able to place the bricks. And it has to work with a human, which technically makes it a cobot rather than a robot <laughs> because it's working in tandem with the human. Uh, and so it like puts the mortar on, it places the bricks, and then a human comes by and sort of cleans up the mortar and cleans up the lines. And working together, they're three times faster than a conventional construction worker. And so that that's already out and presumably that could reduce the cost of having, you know, beautiful houses made out of bricks. So that technology is pretty close, but we also talk about some that are certainly much farther away. Yeah, what's the smart house idea? Smart house? Oh, uh I think we talk about um, I'm trying to remember, was it called smart house? Don't remember, uh, but, but give me a radical. There was something there was a point in the book where you imagined a radical change in the nature of a house for either was its uh, I think it was its ability to transform one room into a different room very dramatically and quickly was that what it was uh, so that that was in the programmable matter chapter yeah yeah and okay. so the the idea there is that you can have uh, a room that essentially has a robot in it and the robot is able to change its configuration to meet the needs of the room at the time. So imagine you're in an office space and you want to have your big group meeting. This robot will sort of open up the space and maybe create a table in the middle of the room and everyone can get together and meet. And then you say, okay, it's time for us to break up and work on our individual projects. And the robot can fold in particular ways to give everybody their own sort of private space where they can go ahead and do their work. And so the idea is essentially that you have a room that can have a lot more purposes than it originally had just by sort of changing the configuration uh, over the course of the day. There was, there was a related notion there. Some guy actually worked on an art project to create a house with emotional states, um, <laughs> which, which we thought was like maybe a terrible idea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I don't, I don't know that I want my house responding to me. Um, but, but I guess it had some way to like detect ambient conditions or like what the people in the house are doing and determine if, as a house, it was you know happy or sad or angry, uh, and then reflect that aesthetically, which uh, maybe not the ideal future. No, but <laughs> change the color of the walls if you're in a bad mood. Add you know, I, I was I was fascinated actually by that that house that robot house idea because. Um, it made me think of when I'm on the road and I'm staying in a hip hotel, which is not very often. To me, the definition <laughs> the definition to me of a hip hotel is a hotel where you need a special manual to figure out how the shower works. Because uh, yes, we, so we had many, that same conversation on our tour. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many uh, handles and levers and knobs, and you don't know what if you turn one whether it's going to scald you or where the water's going to come out of and and it used to be kind of straightforward, but now in a hip place, in a really cool hotel, 
Uh, there's multiple shower heads, multiple options, and <laughs> and you just kind of have to just trial and error it. And along with that usually comes a chrome glass sleekness that that screams, "I'm not like your um, your parents, Hilton." Right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I often find those places cold and um, and not you know warm to come back to. It, it, there's a certain uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wrightish, updated Frank Lloyd Wrightish thing there, where you know Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright's this great innovator, but uh, my philosophy professor, uh, Doctor Smythe, used to say people don't always want to live in those places. They like to look at them, but they want to come back to like a hearth or a comfortable armchair rather than a, a chair made out of um, you know Legos and, and helium or whatever. And I thought about your house and and the houses you were describing and whether those would be places that would. Would they be a home? They'd be a house, but would they be a home where you'd want to come home at the end of the day and feel something emotional, uh, and yet it's always something different because it's so smart? Any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, so for a lot of these technologies, it's hard to know where they're going to find their home and how people are going to respond to them when they finally roll out. So we talk about uh, Google Glass in the augmented reality yep. chapter, and essentially it's just a pair of glasses that where you look through it and it lays over virtual elements on what you're seeing. And you know Google invested a lot in this and thought it was going to really go places. And then it turned out that if you were walking down the street with Google Glass, people would kind of just get angry seeing you because they didn't like the way the glasses looked. Maybe it was the fact that they felt like they were being surveilled by these people who were, you know, hooked into the internet through their glasses. And the CEO of a place called meetup.com literally said, if I see someone with a pair of Google Glass, I'm going to punch them in the face. And so it's it's hard to know how people are going to respond. What a great ad for your product. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and so Google Glass is no longer on the market. Uh, but, But people are working on, for example, contact lenses that work with glasses that look less obviously... Uh, augmented reality-ish. And so the technology is sort of just adapting to the fact that people didn't like the look of that glasses and of those glasses. So you can imagine for some of these these housing ideas, maybe, like you said, it never ends up becoming, uh, never gives you a warm and cozy feeling. And so instead it gets integrated into office spaces where maybe functionality beats wanting to Good have point. a warm and cozy feeling. Yep. Uh, or you could imagine that over time, uh, you know, the technology is made by engineers and then people in other fields get their hands on it and they find ways to make it feel warmer and cozier. Or, you know, maybe the newer generation doesn't, you know, maybe they, they really do feel at home in that sleek glass and chrome look that yeah. also doesn't feel very homey to Zach and I. Right. Uh, but I've certainly visited some, pardon? It depends on what we're used to. You get used right, to it. Yeah, so I visit some of my younger friends who live in lofts that I feel are very cold, but they love it. So it could be that there's a certain demographic for which these technologies really take off. Uh, these things are a little hard to predict. Can, can I add uh, um, some some of the, the the cold feeling? I think um, goes goes back to a change in architecture that occurred throughout the 20th century. And, and one of the things um, that, that's of interest to me about this technology is I, what, what I always think of is there's this author Kelly and I both like, who's mostly forgotten now, named Lilius Haggard, who's a sort of country women's writer in, in, in Britain. And I remember reading one of her books that was written in the 1940s, and she talked about, she was repairing a cottage, and she talked about how, oh, it was nice that there are still all these skilled stonemasons around. It's very easy to get skilled stonemasonry. Mm-hmm. And I, I just assume I can't just do that now. Uh, there, there aren't those people, or at least they're not cheap. Uh, that, that sort of thing 
they would have gone into say a 19th, 18th century cottage is now a thing for rich people. Um, and so that sort of homey aesthetic is actually something you'd need to pay for. And so one of the ideas with introducing robots into the process is you could potentially have a regular person who could afford stonemasonry or woodworking, uh, because you just have a, like a machine arm that's programmed to do it costs very little, uh, and can do things that, that would, you know, take 30 years for a, a woodworker to, for example, be able to do. So one project we talk about is there's this machine and the idea is it looks at a weird shaped piece of wood and, and instantly deduces, oh, this could be a beautiful chair with the following qualities. And presumably to be a woodworker who can both determine that and execute probably would take decades, I would think. Um, so one idea is if you, if you drastically lower the cost of labor and especially lower the cost of certain types of highly skilled artisanal labor, uh, you could you could introduce some of those homey qualities back into homes that regular people could afford, at least in principle. And to, this is a slightly different point, but to go back to integrating the programmable matter chapter into this discussion, uh, some of the things may not look exactly the way that you want them to look, but perhaps they're so useful that you are willing to overlook that. So we talk about a technology called Roombots, which are essentially squares that are able to sort of move and connect to one another. And then they can, for example, pick up a piece of wood and become a table. And while this may not be a beautiful idea design-wise, if you sort of picture what it would look like, uh, one of the functions is supposed to be for people who can't get up easily, the table can adjust to the right height or it can move over to you. And so, again, I can imagine maybe these things wouldn't be in a typical comfy home, but there would be situations in which they would be very useful and you would decide that even though they don't don't look homey. You want them anyway because their functionality is just, you know, really improves the quality of your life. That's just a great example that runs through the book and that is run through this conversation that economics and life, a lot of it's trade-offs. It's about the fact that, sure, you'd love to live in a, the most gorgeous place of all time, but if it costs a zillion dollars, it's not worth it. And if it's an incredibly, if it's a little bit cold and sterile, but it's incredibly cheap, there are a lot of people in the world who would be a lot better off if they had a real house rather than a a shack or a corrugated cardboard box to live in, which is some of the you know the examples you talk about in the slums of the world. Um, and I just want to add on my point about aesthetics is that you know it, as you point out it and as I suggested it, it's kind of what you're used to. And it there's a that cottage in the in the in the Cotswolds that that your author was or wherever it was that, we, that your author loved and found homey. We look at it now and go, that's a stuffy. Weird little place, maybe we might not find that as as comforting as as they did then, and and you know things culture changes. Let's talk about augmented reality a little bit. You know, most of the and this is much, of course, a technology that's much closer. It's here in some dimension, um, but its potential is is quite vast for all kinds of applications. Um, one of the when I think about it today, a lot of the applications you hear about are rather uh, uninteresting to me. Like you'd hold your phone up or your Google Glass or whatever you're wearing when you're at a baseball game, and you could see the statistics of the players hovering over them in, in space. And that just doesn't do much for me. There are a lot of times I'm curious about what a player's particular statistics are in some part of the game. And I look them up on my phone do that fairly often, I, I confess. But, the, you know, having the, my visual lines cluttered with that stuff, and I know I could be able to turn them on and off and selectively and all that, it just doesn't, it's not transformative. Where is augmented reality have the potential to be transformative other than, you know, for novelty effects? Well, so uh, there are companies like Daiquiri that are working to add 
augmented reality into things like uh, workers' helmets. And so the idea here would be that when you're being trained on a really difficult task for the first time, you can have the augmented reality essentially tell you the way to do a task. And and there's been a couple studies where they find that when people are trained in this way, they're much less error prone. So for example, you are putting together uh, a part of an airplane and the augmented reality says, or, you know, the the screen in front of you tells you, okay, you need to pick up a particular wrench and this is the wrench and this is where you need to be tightening the nut. And, oh, look, you didn't do it right. Uh, the program can tell you that you needed to turn it a little bit more or you turned the wrong nut in the wrong place. Uh, and so they've done some studies. I think Daiquiri in particular did a study where they teamed up with Boeing and people who were putting together a delicate part of an airplane made far fewer mistakes when they use this augmented reality setup. And Zach and I are, are particularly interested in planes that have no mistakes uh, when they're put together. Yeah. Uh, and so universal. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. In, indeed. Uh, and so then there's also so, so useful for training. And then there's also the idea that if you are walking around your work site and there's something that maybe is about to go wrong in a catastrophic way, that could be hard for human eyes to pick up in some cases. But the augmented reality helmet could be sort of keeping an eye on things that are going around going on around you. And if it notices something is amiss, it could alert someone to that quicker and then you could take care of it. And uh, there's also some uh, suggestion that this could be useful in disaster areas. So maybe if there's an earthquake, some buildings might have a little bit of a tilt that would be hard to identify uh, if you're just a human looking out at the landscape. But if you had this augmented reality helmet that knew, you know, what the buildings were supposed to look like, it could very quickly compare you know, the lean to what the buildings looked like before and alert you to the buildings that needed to be a priority to deal with immediately. So from the perspective of dealing with disasters, training of various types, not just in industrial settings, it could also be surgical settings, training uh, surgical residents or training a surgeon in a technique that they've never done before, maybe in a war setting where they can't get access to the surgeon who's a specialist, but they can get access to these goggles that will walk them through it, or maybe would even have the specialist hooked into the goggles to give additional advice. Uh, these are these are some of the things that I thought were the most exciting. Yeah, one little thing to add, it, it, with, with the training thing, it's not just that they make fewer mistakes, it's also they actually pick up, at least in one study it appeared, they pick up the actual skill of doing the task without augmented reality more quickly, which to me kind of makes intuitive sense. It's like having a tutor who controls your field of view, uh, and and so that to me that's really exciting because it means you could potentially pick up a skill much more quickly, uh, which it benefits everybody. And also just for those of us who have all sorts of things we want to learn but probably never will, uh, if you could learn you know twice as fast, that could be really exciting. Yeah, it's like I guess I didn't think about it this way. It's kind of like YouTube but better. You know, when you're trying to figure out something <laughs> like how to carve a turkey or all, all the life skills that we uh, that we have around us that we do use now and then. Nothing exotic, but sim- simple things like that. And we often we'll go to YouTube, we'll look at it, and we'll close it, and we'll go try to carve the turkey. And then sometimes we'll prop our phone up near the turkey while we're doing it, <laughs> right? Or a recipe in particular. But to have it hovering there in real space would be better, be a little bit better. Well, and, and sometimes when you're doing something, you don't know until a week later that you didn't do it correctly when it falls apart or breaks at a Correct. catastrophic moment. And the augmented reality you know, headset, for example, should be able to tell you while you're doing it, no, 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 you thought you had it right, but you had it wrong, and you need to do this a little bit differently. And so presumably you'd have fewer mistakes. Yeah, that's very cool. One of the culture issues, this comes up a little bit back to our uh, discussion about comfort of homes. You point out that when Pokemon Go was the rage, is, is it still exist, by the way? I think it does, but it's it not does. quite as cool. Uh, it was so cool for such a so intensely cool for such a short period of time. 
Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, one of the things that people were upset about is that there were Pokemon, and this actually, there are probably people listening who don't know what it is. Um, I can say safely, I didn't play it, but I understood it to be a, where you would see, uh, looking out into reality, you would see um, avatars or whatever they're called in places uh, out in the real world. Is that a, is that a good summary? Yeah, the, the, the important thing is that they're persistent and they're real in the sense that everybody would see the same thing in the same place. And, and you saw them by holding up your phone to the to the to the. How did you see them? Actually, I don't even know. I, I should say I don't think either of us play. Uh, <laughs> but 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 yeah, so it'd be like you hold up your iPad or I don't know if you're really dorky, maybe you have like an Oculus headset or something. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, and so you would just look, and essentially there, there's an arrangement of servers that agrees at a particular point on the surface of the planet, there is a little uh, furry uh, imaginary creature, so that, you know, you, you perhaps if you didn't play, you probably saw people playing. I remember walking around the zoo with my daughter, and you would see three grown men walking around all looking into an iPad, and it took me a sec to figure out what was going on, and I realized they were hunting around the zoo for Pokemon. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically what it is. Yeah, it, it used to be that when you saw someone uh, looking down and mumbling to themselves, it was usually a college professor. But uh, now it's just somebody <laughs> talking to their cell phone. It's you know, it's normal. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that there were Pokemon creatures, these virtual creatures at Auschwitz and Hiroshima, and people were offended that this this silly, meaningless, superficial, um, creative game was in places of of human tragedy, and and it seemed there was something jarring. Uh, and people want that fixed, so they you know they complain that that uh, they need to ban those or stop that or have the sense not to do that. And it just it just struck me as an example of how hard it is to stop technology once it's there. Uh, we like stuff. We like whatever we like. We try to get, and that's a human quality. And uh, seems to me the biggest way to stop. Uh, the uh, Pokemon at, at Auschwitz or um, at Hiroshima is, is for people who play the game to realize that's not in good taste. I don't want to do that rather than trying to do a top down. Neither, neither one of them are easy, though. It's just it's just the nature of life. Yeah, so I think in those particular cases, Nintendo was sympathetic to the people <laughs> who are asking for yeah. the Pokestops to you know not be in these. Uh, sacred places. And so they moved the Pokestops out and I think cordoned off those areas so you don't play Pokemon Go there. But you're in general, it is a problem. And so I think another example we may be given the book is what happens if someone takes a popular augmented reality channel and, for example, draws a swastika on the door of your company. Yeah. And it's your company. You, you know, don't believe in the ideals of Nazis. You would like that swastika to be removed from your door. What right do you have to, re- to forcibly remove something from this augmented world. And the answer to that is not clear. And so there, there's a lot of stuff that would need to get figured out in that regard if this, if this technology did become common. And, you know, maybe people would just not care because they would know that these things can happen in the augmented world and they don't necessarily have anything to do what's happening with in the real world. But you can also imagine that a lot of laws would need to get passed regulating what people are allowed to do with this augmented re- augmented world that lays over our our everyday world. I just think so much of it's going to emerge culturally and how we think about it and that we, me, a 63-year-old guy who right now is somewhat up to date with technology but looks at my 87-year-old father who has trouble with his iPad and inevitably just doesn't work for him. I say, Dad, what's wrong? I don't know. It just doesn't come on or I can't get to the music. And I say, but you could do it yesterday. <laughs> and it's like – and then I, my brother 
sees him or he brings it with him when he comes to visit me and I get it to come on after poke, poke it. I just, you know, I hit a few buttons and it comes on, but he can't do that. So that's going to be me in 25 years. So I'm worried about, but my point is that I think culture will change in how we, how we react to these things. It's, um, it's just, it's just inevitable. I mean, I think it's it's definitely already happening. You can see, yeah. I, I feel like you can see as you talk to different generations, you know, asking how they feel about privacy and Facebook and each generation already seems to have a very different yep. feel for what's acceptable. So, you know, my parents don't want to be on Facebook. They don't want to share their private information. I'm comfortable sharing information about me, but I won't put anything related to my kids on yep. there. Uh, and, you know, presumably my daughter, when she's old enough to go on Facebook, will put every single detail about her life on there. If, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, this keeps keeps moving in the direction it seems to be moving. And with augmented reality, that could also be scary because there are ideas where you could have, I think there's a program called Recognizer that can recognize the faces of people, pull up information from the internet, and then project it over their head. So you could meet someone for the first time and say, oh, this person is single. You know, maybe that, that colors the way I deal with them. Or if you are interviewing someone for a job, you could say, oh, this woman is pregnant. How does that change about my desire to hire her or impact my desire to hire her? I wouldn't have been able to tell that just by looking at her, but now I know because Facebook has that information. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're moving in that direction, and it'll be interesting to see what the younger generations decide because it's scary to us, but it doesn't seem so scary to some of the younger people we talk to while working on this book. I and mean, we talk about, you know, a lot of people will, before a date or before a job interview, will Google or they should. Yeah. They should Google person, and you find out some things that normally, and forty years ago, would have remained hidden uh, about yeah. that person. And interestingly to me, you find out things like, "Oh my gosh, this person follows so and so on Twitter. What's wrong with them?" <laughs> um, which yeah. is the way the world's going to be. I think, uh, whether we like it or used to it or not. And, and to some extent, that's good. You know, yep. you, maybe you would discover you don't want to go on the date with that person because you think that maybe they're a little dangerous after looking at their Twitter account. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's an optimal amount of information that gets shared. There's a lot of latitude for pickiness, I think, is the danger. Yeah. <laughs> well, we see actually, you know, we see a little of that right now. I, I think in the world, we're a little less social and we're moving in that direction right. uh, slowly. There'll be some kind of pendulum swinging back, I suspect. Yeah. Let's move to biology. I want to read a quote, which um, hard to believe it's true, but it's in the book, and you guys are experts, <laughs> so it must be true. And, and you told me you were really worried. It says in the book you're really worried about making mistakes, Kelly. I think it was you who said it explicitly. Most of the book is written in the joint voice of the two of you, but I think Kelly said, you know, I'm a scientist. Zach's a mere cartoonist, and Kelly felt bad about getting the science wrong. I, I don't so, think we meant to imply that, but maybe we did. You thought it. Yeah, it. yeah exactly. exactly. Well, you knew she thought it because you saw it over her head with the augmented reality glasses. Um, but you, here's what you say. It's crazy. You say, um, we've been genetically altering biology, including the foods we eat, for at least 10,000 years. If you look at our primate cousins, their food tends to be seedy. And high in fiber, whereas our favorite our favorite foods are things like cake, beer, and beer cake. No fuss, calorie conveyances. We've gotten pretty damn good at altering biology. One time, we took a single species called Brassica oleracea and turned it into every vegetable you hated as a kid. Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, kale, kohlrabi, collard greens. Yes, all one species slowly modified over generations into a thousand okay-tasting forms, each more cheese-requiring than the last. Is that true? Who's going to defend that claim? 
that they, that that they're all brassic oloratia. <laughs> but they are. They are. No, they. they you you can Look, do I'll the genetic accept, testing. I'll accept that Brussels sprouts are a miniature cabbage. I, I I'm very comfortable with that. But really, kale. <laughs> Collard greens, collard greens. Okay, you know, I can I can linguistically prove it. If you, if you go in the Scots dialect or language, depending on who you're fighting with, uh, they call cabbage keel or kale. Oh, cool. It's just an old word for cabbage. That's that's the scam of kale. Kale is just cabbage. We haven't done much work on. It's just wild cabbage. It's uh, that's why it tastes bad. Uh, I hate to be against the times on this, but, uh, but I, I'll give you. It blew my mind when I first learned that because I I didn't know that uh, as a biologist. I feel like I should have known that about a decade ago, but I think I learned it two years ago. And when I learned it, I definitely had a, that's not true, like, you know, half an hour until I convinced myself uh, by looking, you know, in the scientific literature. But no, it, it is indeed true. Those are all the same plants. It's amazing what you can do with artificial selection. The other thing I learned from your book, which really freaked me out, was the nasal cycle. Can you describe? <laughs> I'm a little, again, I'm a little skeptical about that. And I didn't prep you before this uh Skype call that we were going to talk about the nasal cycle. Is one of you comfortable uh, explaining that? On out of the blue. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so let me let me give the the setting for why we're talking about the nasal cycle in a technology book, which was um, so in, in augmented reality. A lot of the research is about how to essentially deceive the senses, um, and so. You know, one of the ways you want to make visual augmented reality compelling is you have to pump it into both eyes and have, you know, both eyes slightly offset because that's how reality works. You you're, you see an object at a distance, your eyes uh, perceive the object as slightly different based on the distance, and that's how you perceive things three-dimensionally. Anyway, so the point there is the value of having two eyes is to make that three-dimensional judgment. That's why so many animals, especially carnivores, have these binocular eyes that are forward-facing. And you have a similar thing with your ears, right? You you can locate a sound just by listening because it hits your two ears at a different time. And then it occurred, I guess, to me, you have two nostrils. Can you sort of I don't know, what's the equivalent of binocular by nasaler? Can you, can, can you, bicellular? Can, can you, bicellular? Yeah, can you the location of objects in space? And so we, we actually dug in. And interestingly enough, Kelly happened to know offhand a guy who kind of had a, an answer to that because so snakes have forked tongues. And again, it's two things, which implies bicellulation. Um, and so I, I think it was. T- I can't remember if it was smellulation or tasteulation. It was, <laughs> it was one of those two things, and we were corrected. And oh, they're related. Have, they are. Yeah. They are related, but but it, they're they're still distinct. Uh, and and so we were corrected, and that should have cemented it in my mind, but it did not. <laughs> uh, and so the idea is essentially that the you know a snake walks around and it has a tipped tongue, and it collects information about the environment, and then it sticks the tongue into different openings at the top of its mouth in a thing called the vomeronasal organ. Sure. And it gets information about like you know that the mouse maybe went this way or it you know can tell that there's more of a particular chemical on one of the tips of its tongue than the other and that helps it make decisions about which way it wants to go uh and so anyway go ahead oh but yeah so so to get back to the the nasal cycle so basically uh, it turns out humans can't do this you can't sniff the air and say ah my right nostril slightly perceives chicken in that direction they're they're close together Uh, is one of the problems right the, nost- the nostrils are very cl- – they're closer together than the eyes and the ears, right? Right. So it's hard yeah. to get the separation. Yeah, exactly. And and, and the, the other issue so, – so anyway, so our question was, well, then why do you have two nostrils instead of one giant mega nostril? Yep. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, like your mouth. You don't have two mouths. Uh, and it turns out the, – the, the argument is basically that – 
you, you, you keep one nostril open all the time, uh, and then you close it off, and then you open up the other, essentially to keep the whole system lubricated. Uh, if you were constantly breathing through a giant mega nostril, it would dry out, and that would, that would I guess, cause problems. But it's interesting, because scientists really get into this. Like, there, we found a, a group that was, like, 3D modeling the nose uh, as, as a sort of uh, mathematical object. Uh, um, Which is not surprising. We have math models. Yeah, no. but, uh, but, yeah, no, it would... And then there's some hypothesis that the nasal that's being used at a particular time influences your memory. Oh, yeah. And so there are memory tests where undergrads essentially take a test, well plugging one of their nostrils with, like, well, a finger? By, by being forced to breathe through the wrong nostril. Like you said, they made undergrads breathe through the wrong nostril while taking, like, little tests uh, to see what the effect on the outcome was. And I'm very confident that that test on undergraduates is not a reliable, replicable finding. Because I <laughs> bet they didn't have... I bet it's a very that. small sample. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we were mostly happy to find out that it had been done. That apparently you can just do whatever you want to undergraduates. <laughs> they have been through quite a bit. It seems. But just... <laughs> what? Hey, undergrads have been through quite a lot, yeah. it yeah. seems. Uh, course credit, though. I'm sure they got course credit. Yeah. But, I, I, but just to clarify, we, we, we got a little bit off, uh, off this crucial educational lesson for Recon Talk listeners. Your nose works one nostril at a time and goes back and forth. You said you turn on, turn it off. It's obviously not conscious. You don't mentally make an effort to, to switch nostrils between breathing and not. So explain that. What happens? This is crazy. Well, so to, to be fair, we didn't get too thick into this research. <laughs> uh, we, we, we read a couple pages, but I, I think your body just automatically switches between which nostril is the one that's you, that's working at the moment, and that one does most of the, like, what is it called, the nasal elevator? You did most of the research for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's essentially it. You have this in, engorgeable tissue in your nose that, that blocks one nostril and opens the other. I mean, you know, it's, it's not literally true that it totally blocks one side. You can breathe through most your, both your nostrils most of the time. Uh, but one is, I think the word in the field is actually dominant. You have a, it's the, the, the masculine field of nose studies. That's, <laughs> <laughs> there's always a dominant side of the nose. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it's just a, a natural thing your body does. It allows you to, to keep smelling stuff. Um, sadly, not binasally or whatever we called it. Well, I, I have a deviated septum. I think everybody does. It's just a fancy name for saying that the, piece that separates the two nostrils is not exactly even so one nostril tends to work better than the other and um this could explain a lot of my challenges in life that i tend to be kind of mononoscular and it's just (laughs) nostricular um and it's constant maybe it's constantly drying out my memory's not working who knows there's all kinds of challenges there uh i'm gonna move it's nice to have something you can blame though yeah it is and now I would like to say millions, but that would be a lie. Millions of econ talk listeners can do the same thing, but it's 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 merely tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand on a good day. Uh, certainly for this one, obviously. Um, I, I want there, there's some explicit economics in this book, um, in all of its economics in the background, of course, as we've been hinting at. But it's a, there was a paragraph that caught my eye about Dr. Nocera, who was working on hydrogen fuel cells. And it says, but for Dr. Nocera, things didn't work out as planned. The device worked well enough, but hydrogen fuel cells never caught on as a way to store energy, making things worse for him, but great for everyone else. Regular old solar power cells got a whole lot cheaper, making his product less exciting. 
Dr. Nasser's idea was shelved for a time, but harnessing water splitting has a lot of potential. You've got this ultra-cheap way to split water, but the way you get energy out of it is cumbersome. And then you say someone else, Dr. Silver, had an idea. But it just reminds me of the importance of when, when a technology gets subsidized, and I have no idea how much we've subsidized solar energy in the United States, some amount. Because it seems like a great thing. Solar's fantastic. It's 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 clean, and we got this big thing called the sun, and it's got so much going for it, and it's big. It's far away, but it's big, and so we have this natural tendency to want to subsidize it, and we often forget about what we call in economics the opportunity cost. The fact that yeah, but that means it's going to be harder for some other technology that that you're not thinking about or don't know it's going to come along to be effective. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I, I my 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 sense was in the in the case of solar. I guess I don't know the history of subsidies there very well. I, it could have just been a natural, like you know, what I think of often. My my dad uh, was a, um, an engineer at Bell Labs back when Bell Labs was Bell Labs. And he talked about how in the 70s, they, everyone was trying to figure out how to not use silicon because everyone was like, well, we've pushed it as hard as we can. And it just turned out it was always a better deal to keep pushing silicon instead of trying to figure out some germanium alloy or some other semiconductor. And so that, that was – we, we actually – to be honest, I hadn't thought about the point you just made, but I, I think we were arguing essentially that like – PV photovoltaics for all their problems worked well enough that people have kept pushing it and it's just never been viable to try to introduce another option. Um but yeah, I don't know. I, I also like my, my sense is hydrogen can't take off without subsidies. It just didn't seem viable to me. Um so I think that was the limiting factor there. Um but I but I do think it's a fair point. Um uh PV has basically de- defeated all other solar options with with one or two exceptions, uh and, and it has been highly subsidized. So uh yeah, I suppose I don't know what could have happened. Uh, if that had been the case. So I'm just going to read this sentence. We're not going to talk about it. I just don't want it, the episode to end without the sentence being read out loud. Uh, I don't even remember the context. I just clipped it out and pasted it as I was reading because I wanted to not miss it. Uh, you're, I, and readers, you're going to have to re- listeners, you're going to have to read the book if you want to know where it comes from. But we're here we go. If bankers had to get their body cavities opened up to receive a bailout. They might think twice about making another risky loan. Your move, Congress. So I just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of love that. The context of that. I remember what's the context. That, am I, do you want me to not go no, into? No, no. Spoil it for spoil it. It's one of the many premiums for listening to Econ Talk. Go ahead. Uh, that was in the organ printing chapter. So the idea here is you can harvest cells from a human, grow them up, and then potentially use a three D printer to print, for example, a liver. Uh, And so we were talking about one of the risks of doing this is that people could decide, okay, I can just get a perfect liver uh, at any time. So I'm just going to drink like crazy and not worry about it. Uh, So we were talking about that moral hazard. But then we were pointing out that if you needed to get a liver replacement, that surgery is pretty horrible. Uh, And so it's sort of, you know, analogous to the bankers, you know, they can get out as much money as they want or something like that. Uh, And we were saying that, if the if the cost of making a mistake as a banker was as high as needing to have a an organ replaced, uh, then maybe they'd be a little bit more careful, and we would be okay That's with funny. that. I feel like I'm, I'm sure I wrote that line, but it sounds so gruesome to me now to hear it. <laughs> I read the audiobook, uh, most of the uh, the the book for the audiobook version, so a lot of this stuff stuck in my head at that uh, at that time. Well, I like it because I like to um, always point out that the part, maybe a huge part of the financial crisis, was the removal of feedback loops that used to engender prudence and less risky uh, investments and that uh, the body cavity thing for the bailout would so you know people say well we couldn't have a choice 
We couldn't help it. We had to. We had to save the world. And, and, and it may be true. I'm, I'm open to the possibility, but they, they say that a lot. Uh, and sometimes they don't do what needs to be done to save the world, and the world doesn't end. Uh, so, so I really like the idea of adding, uh, potentially adding a cost. So we could say, well, we had to do the bailout. And of course, the, the normal human way to do that is that some people should have been fired, um, or removed if you're going to, okay. if the government's going to give them the money. But I think, um, you know, some kind of biological punishment might have been more <laughs> cheaper. It'd be cheaper just, and maybe more you effective. You used to do a thing where uh, you, you'd put a person on a short stool in the middle of town square and put a cone-shaped hat on their head. I don't yeah. Know, that, that, that seems like a more gentle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's good too. I, I'm, all for, I'm for all kinds of innovations like that in, in raising the cost of, of irresponsible behavior. Uh, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation. I've enjoyed it uh, a great deal, as I think listeners will know. But I want you to reflect. Uh, you could each take turns. Um, there's a part of the book we didn't talk much about, which is uh, dark consequences of some of these innovations or things running amok. Um, and, and of course, it's come up on Econ Talk before. We've talked about you know, whether robots are going to take over the world and uh, in various episodes and, and what are our risks of that. And there are smart people worried about these things and and – I, I used to be a very optimistic person that culture and tech and and other things would emerge to sometimes legislation would emerge to deal with these things. I'm not as quite as optimistic as I used to be. So I'm curious for you, having written this book and done all the research that you did to to write it and talked to a lot of strange uh, people, brilliant, peculiar people about the things that fascinate them. How did it make you feel about? Being human, and I mean, it, it, the book really captures the incredible span of human creativity. And that, that part I found very inspiring. Then there's the potential for things getting out of control. D- did it leave you in the process of writing this book? Did it leave you with any thoughts on those kind of issues? Uh, so it, I guess, it left me disappointed in some regards. So one thing that was particularly disappointing was uh, so I did nearly every interview for the book. And for each person that I interviewed, I asked them, what do you think the negative implications of of these technologies could be? And most people told me that either they had thought of none or they hadn't thought about it at all. (laughs) And and as someone who uh, is in academia, I understand that you are so focused on trying to pitch the good aspects of what you're working on so that you can get grants and you can get the public excited about it so you can later get funding. Like, I get how you get tunnel vision, but if you're going to be bringing some of these technologies to market, you really should be thinking about the negative things that could be done. And so one, you know, I've said this in a lot of talks that we've given about the book, and one pushback that I get that I think is totally reasonable is that people in academia have so much stuff going on that they shouldn't necessarily also have to be a bioethicist, for example. And there's a reason why that's a completely different field. And I agree. People you know, in biology are not necessarily trained uh, to be ethicists, uh, logicists, etc. Uh, but I think that if they don't feel like they can think through the negative implications on their own, they should be teaming up with people who can think about it so that we have some idea as to how these things could go wrong before they hit the market. And so on one hand, I'm really excited because people who are working on these technologies have thought about a lot of great ways that they could make our lives better. And I'm really excited about some of these technologies. But on the other hand, I think there are some ways that these technologies could be really bad that maybe we're not dealing with head on or we're, we've just decided that we'll see what happens and then we'll deal with it. 
And I feel like a more proactive approach would be better. So part of why we wanted to include that in the book was the hope that it'll become, it'll get on people's minds and maybe we'll start dealing with this kind of stuff sooner. So we're, we're cautiously, I'm cautiously optimistic, a little scared about some of the things, uh, but also really excited about the projects people are working on. So I guess I'm just, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we're, we're both sort of like temperament optimistic, uh, but um, it, it I would say for most people, and I think correctly, this boils down to speed. Like if things happen slowly enough, yeah. culture tends to work out over a generation or two. Um, like one thing I think about is when, when I was a kid, my brother and I would play video games till four in the morning, you know, which I'm sure was a very bad, unhealthy behavior. But I don't think my, my parents didn't grow up with the hyper addictive video games, so they didn't know to tell us no. They would have known to tell us no if we were drinking. Uh, but that, <laughs> they had no idea. We, we, we were doing probably a comparably unhealthy behavior, which was getting, you know, three hours of sleep a night so we could collect imaginary coins, you know. And, and, but so, you know, I will know with my kids at least not to let them do that. They'll probably be something else I don't know to say no to. Uh, But I I do think culture tends to accommodate things. The scary thing is if you get a technology that contains uh, some sort of feedback loop, it contains its own uh, development. Like, so so the the fear of a lot of people talk about is AI, like get smart enough to make itself smarter and then change happens so fast. We're not ready for it. Uh, I I think um, I'm not, I don't know enough about that to have a strong opinion, but I, I, one thing we talk about in the book is, is called brain computer interfaces, which is just, you know, the human ability to modify uh, that thing between your ears, um, and um, that is it, it could happen so fast that it becomes dangerous because you, you know it does it does contain an internal feedback loop, which is we're all suddenly smarter, and there's a market for increased intelligence. There always has been, there always will be, and uh, suddenly we're all smarter, and we have to be smarter than the other guy, and so we're we're like massively modifying our brains now, and now like not only are we not ready for it, but like the the we in that sentence has changed, like what we are has changed. Uh, and you know, for me at least, beyond that point, it becomes hard to even think about. Um, like I can I can think about basic ideas as like what what might happen if we all had fifty more IQ points, uh, which sounds at least in principle not so bad to me. Uh, but um, but you know, you, you iterate that technology for fifty years, and at some point, we're we're making changes that are hard for us to think about right now. And at that point, we've like essentially obliterated our own species in pursuit of I don't know what like market signaling or something. Um, so so that 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 could be a bit ominous if, if there's a rapid sort of feedback loop or um, a mechanism that's hard to deal with because it benefits the individual even as it hurts society. I don't know that there's a, a good way to fix it. That's actually, I would say, the one technology we're both pretty freaked out about uh, was, was brain modification. Um, so that's the one area I'd say I'm a bit pessimistic. Maybe, maybe Kelly less so, I don't know. Yeah, I'm a little a little pessimistic for the reasons that you said. Uh, as someone who studies parasites that manipulate the brain, I, that, that is actually a technology that I'm not super convinced we're going to work out anytime soon because uh, the brain just seems so complicated. But anyway, I, I think wrangling asteroids maybe scares me more from the perspective <laughs> of uh, weapons. But anyway, now we're off on a different topic. My guests today have been Kelly and Zach Wienersmith. Their book is Soonish. Kelly and Zach, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.